Hey, Joel here from the Think Institute. Would you like to bring the Think Institute to your church, group, ministry, or conference? We can provide high quality, theologically sound, and engaging education in the areas of evangelism, apologetics, and the biblical worldview. We've spoken at churches, schools, conferences, and groups in Chicago, Indianapolis, Franklin, Tennessee, New Orleans, Dubai, and the Philippines, and more. We want to help your local church, ministry, or conference fulfill your piece of the Great Commission. We can provide teaching in person or remotely using our state-of-the-art conferencing technology. Learn more about bringing me or a member of the Think Institute team to your church, ministry, group, or conference by going to thethink.institute slash booking. That's thethink.institute slash booking. Welcome to The Think Podcast, the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective with your host, Joel Sedeckes. And now, get ready to think. All right, there we go. Welcome back to The Think Pod, The Think Podcast with Joel Sedeckes. I'm Joel Sedeckes, and this is the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective to help you explain, share, and defend the Christian message. Now, I've been looking forward to this one for quite some time, and that's because um, every now and then there's there's a return. Okay, the big return that we're all waiting for, that's the return of Jesus Christ. Nothing compares to that, obviously. But think about when Michael Jordan returned in, uh, in 94, okay? Um, if you were alive back then, you remember the ecstasy the enthusiasm that, uh, well, okay, listen, I, I grew up in Chicagoland, so for me, huge deal, but I think it was for others as well. Okay, when uh, when Jordan returned, it was like, this is this is great, this is amazing, he's coming back. Or think about if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, which probably there are several of you listening to this, watching this, given who we have on today. Think about when Gandalf the Grey comes back as Gandalf the White. And it's like, yeah, Gandalf is back. Now we're going to win. We're going to get the ring to Mordor. This is amazing. Okay, everybody loves a great return. And today we have a truly epic return. Before I announce who's coming back, if you don't already know, stay tuned because you're going to want to hear about this. But let me just introduce what we're talking about today. But just keep that in mind that today is the day of an epic return. Now, if you're already... A follower of Jesus, then odds are you already believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Makes sense, right? Although Scripture has many human authors, about 40, the divine author overseeing the process of its writing is the Lord Himself. And uh, really, you could say God is like the author and the general editor of the 66 books of the, of the Bible. But today's episode is going to be very encouraging to believers because it's going to reveal something very cool about God's Word, about the book that God authored. Now, if you're not yet a Christian, this episode, I hope, will challenge you with the remarkable literary attributes of the Bible and demonstrate why it makes such good sense to take it and its central message of the gospel deadly seriously. One of the really cool things that happens, though, when you believe the Bible is that uh, when you believe it's the divine Word of God and that God is the author of Scripture, is that you can start to analyze the Bible intratextually within itself and intertextually from one text 
to another. The Bible is a whole, but it's it's also a diverse collection of books. And you get to notice some pretty amazing things, like some pretty cool literary techniques used by the author. And I don't mean Moses, Isaiah, or John. I mean the divine author, God himself. After all, if God is an author, and he is, then he's going to be able, then he's going to be the best author imaginable. And he's going to use literary techniques that communicate his story dynamically, powerfully, and in a way that reveals his divine authorship. Every author has his own unique writing style, some better than others, and God's writing style is going to be the best. So as students of God's word, when we analyze his works, we should be looking for what he's doing and how he's doing it, how he's getting his points across, how he's telling his story. So in this episode, what we are specifically talking about is this. There are two literary techniques that God uses in scripture that are related to one another that powerfully convey his divine authorship and magnificently reveal his masterful ability to weave a compelling narrative. Namely, these two literary attributes are foreshadowing and typology. Now, my guest today, and this is the big return, is Michael Jahoski, who is returning for his second visit to the ThinkPod. Uh, you can catch my previous discussion with Michael Jahoski on uh, on the Think Institute Network. You can check it on the uh, whatever podcast um, catcher you're listening to this on or on YouTube or by going to our website. We talked about the Lord of the Rings. But uh, Jahoski is an assistant professor of humanities at St. Petersburg College. His academic background is in classical and biblical history, as well as philosophy, theology, and the arts. Okay, Michael, we get it. You know a lot of stuff. Quit flaunting. He earned his two bachelor degrees from the University of Central Florida and a master's from the University of South Florida. He's the author of the book, The Good News or the Return of the King, The Gospel in Middle Earth. As far as I know, he still claims to be a Roman Catholic, but we're working on him. You can follow his uh, blog at um, thelastdunadan.com. No, thelastdunadan.com. He's going to tell you what his website is. And of course, if you haven't done so yet, subscribe to the Think Institute on YouTube if you haven't done so. And follow us on, uh, on Facebook. Also, if you haven't done so yet, give us a, uh, a hit that little subscribe button and tap that bell so that you never miss an episode of the Think Podcast um, on, on YouTube. And um, I'll tell you more about how to partner with us and how to get involved with us later on, but uh, I do have his website. It's lastdunadincom.wordpress.com. D-U-N-A-D-A-N-C-O-M. Lastdunadincom.wordpress.com. All right, so there you go. Without any further ado now, because there's been more than enough ado so far, let's welcome him back to the ThinkPod, Michael Jahoski. How you doing, brother? I'm doing great. That was a great intro. Thank you, Joel. Man, um... Um, I, I, I think it was, it, it was, it was, um, it was, it was only appropriate to celebrate the return yes. of Michael Jahoski to the ThinkPod. Brother, I've been looking forward to this for a while. Me too. And, um, how, how have you been? Now we were careful not to catch up prior to the show because we wanted yeah. to, we wanted to have this conversation on there. So how have you been doing? 
Well, first of all, I'm not sure if people were aware last time. I think I rose from the dead on your show. Remember we had that little blip? <laughs> oh, right. That's right. So that was a very appropriate intro with uh, the Gandalf <laughs> reference. So anyway, yes. now that that's out of the way, yeah, hopefully we'll have no technical blips this time. No, we're good. Um, you know, as as far as uh, affiliation with church, we, we, we haven't formally returned yet. We were really, I think, having second thoughts about it. Uh, we're, we're returning to, to the Roman Catholic. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Okay. So we're we're really praying, studying, uh, talking with people, trying to figure that out. So I have a uh, church. Um, actually, it's a Protestant church locally who's asked me to come speak um, probably in the next few weeks. So uh, seems like a good church. I don't know. Maybe that will have some, uh, you know, a future for us. So, uh, you know, that's still kind of up in the air. Um, but yeah, no, busy working, you know. Yeah. And yeah. Um, how's how's teaching? Are you guys? What, what are you doing for schooling right now? Are you remote? Are you in so person? I am in a weird place. Yeah, I am still remote until, let's see, we've got two and a half more weeks. I'll be done at the end of April. Um, I'm back in the summer uh, for uh, at least one face-to-face -face starting in uh, June, actually. I've got a nice little break and I get to plan. So I'll be teaching again in the classroom uh, at least a little bit. I don't know. Yeah, you know, so that, that seems to be a full return by the fall. We'll be back, uh, you know, teaching four or five classes. So nice all right yeah. um yeah that's that's got to be exciting it is it is finally uh, good to be back in the office so yeah absolutely yeah. man well well um very cool and um hey you know what let me let me pick your brain on a think institute related matter real quick and i'm going to put this out to our listeners as well right now For um sure. actually before we do that you know i did get a comment here um, we've got people saying uh, hello. We've got people giving us heart emojis. Um, nice. People saying hi. So that's always good. Um, yeah. Although Slam RN is saying that your blog link does not work. So let me put oh. that. Let me put the link up there again one more time. It's mm. lastdunadan.com. Dot wordpress.com so yeah michael when are you going to get a real uh, web address that's my question. yeah I, you know I, i've got to let me let me confess so i'm a bit of a dinosaur when it comes to this so when i when i published the book in september you know all of this was new got to sure. get a website got to get social media again and i was learning how to uh, to work everything so I, I i know there's a way to edit the url so i'm going to have to get somebody to, to sit down with me and help me do that I didn't choose it. I just kind of signed up for the thing and, and yeah. it's just a uh, you know, place to put everything. So apologies sure. for that. I'm not sure it's pulling up for me. Um, and I, you know, again, um, it's, it's exactly as you copied it. So I don't know if that last backslash needs to be there or not. I, I don't know if that makes a, a world of difference, but, okay. Okay. Um, but, um, it's working. Are, are you still doing mythic mission as well? I am. Yeah, we uh, we just had um, I don't know if you know, Dr. David Downing and Dr. Crystal Downing from um, the Wade Center, Marion E. Wade Center. And it's in Illinois, um, you know, so is that a yeah, college? Where is that? Wheaton College. Yeah. Yeah. OK. So we had them on. That was a nice kind of roundtable. My wife joined us and uh, we got to do that together. And then um, before that, I had Paul Gould on the show. Sorry, my computer became unplugged here. Hold on one second. There we go. Oh, good. Well, and well, you're uh, plugging that in. Yeah, go yeah. ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, no, no, it's been busy. So yes, we're still doing Mythic Mission. Yeah. That's great. All right. Well, everybody mm -hmm. go check out uh after this is done, go definitely go check out Mythic Mission. And um that's uh it's a podcast, YouTube channel, and uh he's having some really great conversations over there. Paul Gould is a personal friend. He's a he's a good man. Very very yes. wise, very smart. Yes. Um, so good. All right, well. Let's go ahead and get into our topic then today. 
Um, we're, we're talking about literary techniques, which is kind of a weird thing to think about when we're talking about scripture, because it seems like, and, and I know this is going to be a false dichotomy, isn't it? But doesn't it seem like the people who want to analyze scripture as literature are often non-believers, you know, and mm -hmm. they're, they're going to look at the literary merits of it. And then the people who, um, who really believe scripture, who believe that it's the word of God might not take such a literary uh, look at it because to do so almost seems to kind of humanize it in a way that might feel inappropriate to people. Hey, this is God's word. Why are we treating it as though the authors had, um, had, you know, input here? Of course we do. Mm. The authors did have input, but, mm. but, we're, but what we're trying to do today is we're trying to look at the scripture in terms of its divine authorship. And mm. so um, what, maybe just some some introductory remarks as an author as a scholar of literature and uh a, a, i'm gonna call you a tolkien scholar uh, i don't yeah. know because i you know you've written about tolkien and it's been your book was um was well praised and, and well reviewed w what do we need to know michael b before we start to examine the bible as literature specifically in terms of its divine authorship yeah, so I know, I think we come at the apologetic schools from different angles, although I think they overlap as most of them do. You're a presuppositionalist, right? Mm -hmm, and right. Uh, I kind of take more of a classical approach, but I, I don't really see any issues with them. You know, they're not oil and water. So I, I would say, uh, maybe you're, you have a stronger point on this, but I would say that the believer or non-believer first needs to approach the idea of belief in a personal God, a God of the Bible. Uh, you, you really can't talk about God being the author of a book uh, with or without human involvement, which, you know, we believe the Holy Spirit guided human hands, but you really can't even get that far with somebody until you establish good evidence that points to a solid conclusion for this kind of God existing. I think once you've got that, you know, you you have another issue. You have somebody who might say, well, what about human meddling? You've, you, As you already indicated, what about, you know, uh, the inconsistencies we see in the text? And those are some things. Another thing I get all the time is, well, what about other religions and what what does this have to say i mean does the bible have anything to say about that and would god exclude all of these other religions and you have all sorts of like concentric circles of problems right you know being raised at this point i i find you know typology is so important and it's a really solid way it's the way that jesus taught us to read scripture i i believe um which for us matters most of all but there's How just so, so many when issues did jesus teaches yeah. that well, I would say, I mean, I've got several examples to, to illustrate this, but my favorite uh, probably is Luke 24, 13 through 35. So uh, for this, um, this is uh, the road to Emmaus. You know, Jesus is risen. He's uh, approaching Cleopas and the other disciple on the road to this small village on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And he uh, shows them how to read the scriptures to find uh, him there. There's another passage in John chapter 5. I've got to go find the exact um verses that's further down in my notes but luke 24 i mean jesus is you know he doesn't here's the interesting thing we'll get into i'm sure but he doesn't tell us exactly how to do it he doesn't give us rules you know scholars have kind of extracted that today but he does tell us to search moses and the prophets uh to find him there and and i think that's probably the the most important passage there okay, okay you know that that's helpful that luke 24 passage is mm -hmm. really um the it's talk about a return talk about a reveal uh you know you you almost sense the the shock and the astonishment of the apostles as you know they're walking with jesus and then jesus opens up the scriptures 
and shows them all the parts that pointed to him and opens up their eyes so that they can see it. And then, of course, as soon as they see it, as soon as they realize who he is, bam, he's gone. You know, so, yeah. you you know, talk about a literary technique. I mean, that's just yeah. masterful, masterful storytelling there. Um, yeah. So when we're when we're talking about types and typology and and anti-types, what are, we, we do need to probably define our terms. So why don't sure. um, why don't you define typology for us and then I'll talk about foreshadowing. Sure. Yeah, uh, as we'll see quickly, they over they overlap. So right. a type, and I'm getting this, um, you know, uh, I think solid definition. I've got a couple of different sources I'd share, but Mitchell L. Chase has a book on allegory and uh, typology. Gerald R. McDermott has a great book. Um, actually, Gould recommended it. Uh, he did a book review. It's called Everyday Glory. So for those of you listening who like to, you know, chase down uh, sources, there there's a couple. But a type is a person, event, or institution that prefigures. Now, this is different than predicts. And I know you've got this on the uh, show agenda today. This is not the same as finding a proof text and predicting something that's going to happen. It prefigures what we call the antitype, the thing to which the type points. So again, this comes from a Greek word, typos, meaning a figure or a person or a thing, an, an event, an institution pointing to and prefiguring uh, the antitype, the person or thing foreshadowed, keyword, by the type. So a biblical type more specifically is even even more uh, to drill down a little bit deeper, a person, office, place, or institution, event, thing in salvation history that anticipates and shores, shares a correspondence with, uh, and here's another term, the archetype. Now that's Jesus. So the archetype, it you know has meaning in um, secular psychological circles, but uh, the Greek means basically the, the original model, the first first model. And this, of course, is the person of Jesus. He is not just any antitype. There are lots of antitypes in all of reality, you know, and, and in the Bible that types point to. But the thing that um, or the person from which all of these types, uh, you know, flow uh, is the great antitype or what we say the archetype Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ. And uh, we uh, we find C.S. Lewis talking about um, the difference between symbolism, which is basically what we're talking about, or sacramentalism and allegory. And, and typology is associated with sacramentalism slash symbolism, in which we're looking for evidence of the archetype in the lower types. And, and this is something that we can not only do in the Bible, but we can do it in all of reality. And I would even argue this has um, ramifications and, and implications for uh, other religions, you could know? you could you make that yeah. point one more time? You said we're looking yep. for the archetype. Um, okay, okay, yeah. If, if you could if you could re repeat that, I, I sure I was tracking with you until that statement. That's okay. Yeah, so we're we're looking for Jesus, the archetype, the the great antitype in uh, the lower types. That is in in reality itself. We're looking okay. for uh, the things uh, that that prefigure him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Keep going, please. Yeah. Um, so by the way, the, the passage from John 5, which is another favorite of mine, is uh, John 5, 39 through 40 and 45 through 47. You know, this is where Jesus uh, is talking uh, about after he's healed a lame uh, man in the temple courts, I believe. Uh, he tells him that you've searched the scriptures and, you know, you didn't find me there. But, you know, if you believed Abraham, he says elsewhere, you know, you, you would believe me. And if you right. believed in Moses, you would believe in me. So there's another time where he's reprimanding people saying, you know, you've got to search this. And one of the things Richard B. Hayes, another author who talks about uh, typology, says is that there's a little bit of circularity here for nonbelievers that might be challenging. 
in, in order to understand what Jesus is saying, this is related to the topic of typology, we have to first assume that Jesus is the thing, the person that we ought to be finding. Uh, but that's not something that many Jews already assumed. So this was difficult for them because they already had a hard time hearing his I am statements in the Gospel of John and right. you know, had to accept him first in order then to search the scriptures. But he's also telling them in the same, in the same, you know, on the other hand, that you'll find me there. So you're not reading your Bible right. So this is a really challenging statement. Right, right. Um, we have That's, to enter in the yeah. circle. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. That, man, you know, you're right because mm. typology is something that is rightly understood in retrospect, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, this just happened. It's kind of like, you know, you read Matthew. Matthew is so good at yeah. revealing the antitypes to the old testament types or the fulfillment to the prophecies the you know the predictive prophecies and and it's like okay jesus is is um he's he's going with his family to egypt all right mm -hmm. so here comes matthew to say just as it is written out of egypt i called my son and it's like oh in retrospect that makes such good sense Jesus mm -hmm. is the fulfillment of Israel. Jesus is the son. He's the fulfillment of what, what Israel was as the quote unquote son of God. So you're looking back in time, but Jesus actually excoriates the Pharisees for not seeing him in advance for not, they studied the scriptures, but, mm -hmm. and you know, of course the law, the prophets, but they failed to see that they pointed to Jesus. So in some sense, Jesus is calling them out for not seeing, uh, not recognizing him. Um, what do you think? Is he saying you should have looked forward to see me? Or is he saying, now that I'm here, you should you should be able to apply this, you know, this 2020 hindsight and see this was always the plan all along. Is he saying you should have been expecting me or or you should recognize me now? I think it's both. And this okay. is what Hayes's point is, is that it's kind of a circular reasoning, but you know, you should have been able to search the scriptures and find that, uh, you know, I, I'm here and uh, exactly as prefigured. Uh, but at the same time now, uh, and I would say actually just a slight amendment that he, he's kind of hinting that after he's risen, the risen Messiah, that's the perspective from which we should look back on, on scripture. So I think it's a little bit of both. Yeah, but he says that before he's risen from the dead, though. Of, of course, of course. But, but this is what Hayes is kind of commenting. He says that the, you know, it's the risen Jesus, the, okay. uh, the risen Lord that is ultimately, but, but I mean, of course, yes, it's, uh, yeah, yeah obviously sure. long before that. So, I mean, I think it's, I think it's a bit of both. Uh, but that's why it was so challenging, uh, for the, for the scribes and the Pharisees that they couldn't, they couldn't see that. Uh, yeah. Nevertheless, um, he doesn't give us, Jesus doesn't give us hard and fast rules. And this is where I've done a lot of research, you know, about how to find types. And so believers especially have questions for um, how do I do this without abusing, you know, my, my, my capability of reasoning? I mean, how do I know I'm not making these up or finding parallels that ought not to be there? And right. what are the, what are the, uh, the guardrails rather? to keep me within a biblical parameters here to do typology. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, I think that answers your question, but yeah, another thing you mentioned that I forgot to is that typology is always necessarily retrospective. So that is, we're looking back from the position of, as I said, the risen Messiah, looking back on the old Testament scriptures, we're not, um, you know, we're not starting in the old Testament and then predicting the Messiah coming. And I'd like to talk eventually about some of the differences uh, in doing one versus the other, because they're subtle, but they're very important. And there's, there's something that we really miss 
if we do it kind of the predictive route, the, um, the, the typical evangelical route, we might say, um, there's something very important that we miss when we do that. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. What maybe, maybe let's go ahead and go there because I'm okay. sitting on, I'm sitting on this argument from foreshadowing, but I'm, I'm, I really am. When you mentioned that, you know, we were talking of course through Facebook messenger before we, uh, as we were sort of discussing this episode and I am, I am curious to hear what you have to say about that. So yeah, let's, let's keep sure. this rolling and we'll get to foreshadowing in a couple minutes. Yeah. Okay. So I think um, the, the the biggest thing that we miss when we look predictively at scripture is, first of all, we, we miss the precedent of the church tradition that has typically said we have to do it retrospectively. And you have the great Martin Luther saying that the Old Testament is the swaddling clothes and the manger in which Christ lies. Right. He, he now, says this. Now, as a um, as a uh, 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 an almost Roman Catholic, I'm, I'm surprised <laughs> to hear you. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, citing Martin Luther there, that's uh, Very. Uh, I, maybe I, I'm glad I'm over here because, you know, the Pope, I think, already has <laughs> the Swiss Guard deployed to your house. But that's yes. that's fine. That's a choice you're making. It's a risk yeah. you're taking. Well, and, you know, I, I won't I won't lie. There's a, I mean, I, I there's a there's probably more Protestant scholars in my book that I cite than Catholic ones. But uh -huh. anyway, I think this is a point of, of uh, not of contention, but I think that we agree that, you know, this is something we need to do. Um, but yeah, that's right. The, uh, the Swiss guard is on their way. Yes. So I think the, uh, the, the big, the big deal here is that when we, um, when we don't read scripture retrospectively and typologically, we're going to miss the original meaning and context of the, uh, the Hebrew Bible, the old Testament scriptures. And so what we get, you know, like Lewis says, you know, we, if we put first things first, we'll get second things thrown in, but if we don't, we'll lose both. Mm. And I think this is kind of the lesson is that, by by standing in the position of the Emmaus Road and looking back on Scripture, we're not only going to see meaning in Isaiah and the Torah, the, the writings of the Old Testament, uh, as having some you know meaning in their own original context, but it's going to flow the other way too, and it's going to illuminate and, and shed light and foreshadow the the great archetype. But okay. if we're just starting in the Old Testament, we're often just looking at these texts predictively. And what that means is we're going to really just see that there are means to an end to talk about Jesus. Uh, who cares that, you know, the, the Isaiah and the virgin child thing has to do with um, Hezekiah. You know, that doesn't matter. It's about Jesus only. And I know that this is a slippery slope um, and I'm not qualified to talk about all parts of this, but uh, I would say that there's a way to read it that allows that original meaning to be there, but also to flow in the other direction. Um, but if we start and we just look predictively, we're gonna we're gonna miss the original meaning. That's I think the that's big. Good. Yeah. What do you What do you think about the idea that some theologians have um, that all prophecy has at least two fulfillments? So there's an immediate fulfillment, hmm. i.e., you know, the 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 virgin or young maiden will give birth, and uh, you know, will bear a son. That's immediately fulfilled, or you know, mm -hmm. in the short term, with Hezekiah, but mm -hmm. then ultimately fulfilled, or secondarily fulfilled, um, not secondarily in terms of importance, but you know, temporarily, right? right? Like in history, yeah, um, exactly. Subsequently fulfilled in Christ. Do you, mm -hmm. is that is that sort of uh, does that tie in with you know your view there, or would, would do you think that that's you know a hermeneutical principle we can't even necessarily? Hold no, on? I. 
I think that's exactly what we should believe is that there there's a double kind of prof- prophetic nature there that there's there's a an immediate pronouncement on the first circumstance of the text and then pointing to uh, what it foreshadows and prefigures. So foreshadows and prefigures are two ways of saying the same thing. Okay, uh, I've learned uh, at least from from reading Hayes's book. Uh, echoes of of scripture uh, in the Gospels, which is really the finest book on this subject that we're talking about. I think. All right, can you give us that title again? I'll yeah, put it up on the screen. Sure, it's Richard B. Hayes, H A Y H A Y S, and uh, it's it's called Echoes of Scripture in the Gospels. Let me just double check that. I'm pretty sure that's it. Okay. Echoes of Scripture in the Gospels. Okay, good. So I've got that up on the screen. Richard B. Hayes's book, mm-hmm. Echoes. Of scripture in the gospels all right yeah. so if you're watching this yeah. live right now and you've read that book you have any thoughts on it um yeah definitely comment below and uh and let us know what you think about it but um mm-hmm. but okay so that's so that's yeah that's really helpful um what do you think about um you mentioned how it can be tough to draw that line mm-hmm. or 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 maybe if we think in terms of a, a plumb line you know the the plumb mm-hmm. bob that, that sits below the um the line there that um that marks a a straight line that they would use in the old school construction buildings it's a biblical metaphor but Mm -hmm. um it can be it can be challenging to really like like hold steady and draw that straight line when we're examining scripture to find you know is this a type or am i just being creative here and because isn't that the problem that the old uh the church fathers ran into where mm-hmm. everything was typological. Everything was metaphorical. And what was the, um, allegorical, the out, al- the old allegorical mm-hmm. reading of scripture. Mm-hmm. So, um, I can comment. Well, how do that. we avoid, how do we avoid that? Oh, you, you, okay. So yeah. Yeah. Flesh that out for us. Okay. So first of all, I think it's origin from the third century who you're thinking of, who, uh, you know, one of the church fathers it's still in the Catholic church. I don't think has been, uh, you know, made a saint because of his embracement, mm. uh, em- embracing, excuse me, of uh, universalism. But uh, Origen's mm. problem was that, and, and here's another way of looking at allegorizing, is when we start with a mental abstract picture and then try to find uh, it in concrete things, something like that, or we translate it into concrete concepts. Mm. And the problem is uh, Origen often applied non-biblical principles in doing that. So there's, there's kind of two problems there is that, um, let me put it in another way. We're starting with man's thoughts and man's traditions and then going and finding things. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, Hayes and McDermott, Gerald R. McDermott has a book called Everyday Glory, which is another good one. He says that typology is nas- necessarily, excuse me, not necessarily, that wouldn't sound right, necessarily uh, descending, not ascending. So it's, it's, um, it's not a priori, it's a posteriori. So we think okay. after God's thoughts yeah. And that's, that's I think, an important thing that we keep in mind. Otherwise, we're going to fall into the pit uh, that, that Origen did. Um, and so, yeah, then there's, you know, there's rules about um, how do we know that we're not doing a lot of what Origen, Origen did with using our own thoughts. We're not thinking after God's thoughts. We're, we're using our own as, as measuring sticks. And McDermott fleshes this out better than I think anybody I've seen, uh, you know, as far as rules. But um, he says, first of all, you know, it has to be firmly within what the biblical worldview supports. So, you know, if it's teaching something antithetical to creation, right. fall, redemption, restoration, it's not going to fall within uh, the parameters of, of a proper type that's outside the Bible. 
Now, obviously, if the Bible mentions it, it's going to be probably typologically sound. Mm-hmm. Like he gives, you know, basic examples like marriage, olive branches, lilies in the field, um, you know, stones, you know, the, the stones will cry out if, if I tell my disciples to be quiet, things like that. You think of Shakespeare's sermons and stones, you know, um, these are you know, vine, bread, wine, um, branches, etc. These are things that are pretty clear. Uh, but the things that are not in uh, the Bible or not clearly uh, kind of delineated by the Bible or sanctioned by it, we have to still have it fall within a clear range of biblical meaning, um, right. which which means within that fourfold um, storyline of the of the biblical worldview again, which is creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and um, we have to just be careful. And and then a, a last check uh, or guardrail would be. The church tradition as we we have to look at the whole catholic tradition in this sense i mean catholicos as universal not yeah, roman universal, catholic right mm-hmm. so there's there's more rules but you know jesus what's important is that he said to do it he didn't say how to do it hmm. but then again he did because his parables are a guide for how to do it um you know that is that this is kind of the way he established god thinks in this way he he scattered hints of himself in, in everything, in the lilies of the field, um, you know, sparrows in the air. And so Jesus models, um, in a way, how to do typology just by telling parables. That's another thing. Yeah, and we um, we talked a lot about parabolic teaching and mm-hmm. uh, the, the use of the parables and, and even how Lord of the Rings is an extended yep. parable. It's written parabolically uh, last, time right. we, last time we talked. That's right, yeah. So. Uh, okay. Uh, very cool. So, um, can we, I, I do want to talk about foreshadowing, but first yeah. we probably ought to define the term figural writing. You mentioned prefiguring mm-hmm. earlier and in our conversation offline, we talked about how you, you actually mentioned, I didn't even realize this in one of your messages to me, you mentioned figural writing mm-hmm. and then I mentioned figural writing, not even realizing you had just used the term, but I was doing some research online, came across that term. And I I think we would both agree foreshadowing, which we're going to talk about in a minute, and typology both fit into this category of figural writing. And uh, it's really masterful how scripture uses this, but what is figural writing and, and how do these two terms, or, or maybe let's just define the term, what is figural writing? Yeah, so a figure comes from that Greek word typos, which which refers to an image. So it refers to something concrete. And at least this is what my research has yielded: is that it has to do with okay. uh, figures. You know, that is uh, ab- not abstract, but uh, images that that aid in teaching, uh, and that things that are going to eventually uh, prefigure when looked retrospectively from a certain kind of point. So fi- um, figure and type, we should understand those two as being. Essentially the same figure type typology that's, figural writing. That's my understanding. Okay. I could be wrong there, but this is this is my understanding. Yes. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Got it. Um, okay. Okay. So let's let's talk about. Um, and, and I'm sorry, Michael. Did I cut you off there? Were you? No. No. Not at all. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. Good. So. No, sir. So let's talk about. Um, and I don't know a better way to do this other than just to just sort of lay it out. But this is my argument from foreshadowing and what i'd like to do it i'm just gonna i'm gonna lay it out and then i'd like to know your thoughts on it um this as far as i know this is an original argument that i've come up with it's i i think 
it's presuppositional. I believe it's pre. I tend to think in a presuppositional way, but I still have some of my old uh, evidentialist and, and classicalist uh, impurities in me. Um, <laughs> and so, and that's not a dig against no. evidentialism. It's but but it's not pure presuppositionalism in that sure. sense. Um, but if listen, if you want to view it as a dig on classicalism, that's fine too. I'm okay with that. But um, all in good fun. But um, really quick, let me just draw our viewers' attention to the question that is scrolling down the bottom of your screen right now, scrolling across it, which is this, what should we call the Think Institute community of listeners, learners, and friends? Should we refer to us all as Think Squad or Think Fam? Very important question. I'd like to know your thoughts. Uh, leave a comment if you're watching live. And Michael, what, what do you think? Are you on Team Think Squad or Team Think Fam? I think fam, I think think fam sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. As a family guy. So, okay. Yeah. That's what I'm, you know, I'm thinking, you know, Hey, listen, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're thinking together. Mm -hmm. Think fam. Now think squad. I like because it rhymes with think pod. You know, you got yeah. the think pod watching the think squad or the think squad watching the think pod. But look at this. Nate Werner says think fam uh, sounds dumb. Ooh. Okay, well, <laughs> so, hey, you know, thanks for uh, pulling your punches there, Nate. Really appreciate the uh, the gentle way that you mm. delivered that. Not, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, uh, Nate's Nate's a, Nate's a good man. I don't care what people yeah. say about him. I like him. Um, yeah. So, okay, so let's talk then about um, let's talk about foreshadowing, and I'm going to queue up my banners here for those who are watching live, and essentially um we're just, well i'll tell you what let's just dive into it okay so foreshadowing to foreshadow is to show or indicate beforehand or to prefigure okay that's coming from dictionary.com if you don't like it blame them but i i like that definition i think that makes sense but Me it's too. when an author when an author uses foreshadowing by incorporating elements that ominously allude to events that will happen later we readers admire that author's ingenuity, ingenuity. Um, in other words, it's like, hey, that this author is pretty gifted. This is a skilled author. If they're using foreshadowing, um, one of the, the the conversation points, Michael, that I remember from our last conversation is you talked about how the king under the mountain, um, uh, Thorin, Thorin, mm -hmm. prefigures or or even uh, foreshadows. Mm -hmm. um, Strider, uh, what's his name? Uh, Aragorn. Uh, Aragorn, yes. Mm -hmm. And and uh, I thought that was very interesting. There's almost a King David, Jesus Christ kind of mm -hmm. parallel there. And mm -hmm. you know, before we did that, uh, or I should say, um, since you and I had our last conversation, Alisa and I read through The Hobbit with the kids, and I saw it. I I totally saw. The foreshadowing, because I'm not going to give a spoiler for those who haven't read the book and want to, but what mm. happens to Thorin, it's like, uh, oh, w wait a wait a minute. Um, mm. I thought this was all building towards Thorin. I guess, I guess not. I guess he's not the ultimate expression of these themes, and we mm. have to wait for one to come. That's mm -hmm. okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, so that's foreshadowing. Now here's my argument. I'm going to try to zip through these these uh, points here, but basically it works like this. Okay. An old Testament prophet living in 800 BC will have proclaimed something that um, is from God purportedly in scripture. All right. Or else um, we'll have 
had some sort of extraordinary life experience because so much of what happens to the prophets themselves, their own experience is foreshadowing. It is typological. Mm -hmm. Um, Eight centuries later, an event in Jesus Christ's life will happen that displays an eerie similarity to the Old Testament occurrence. And I say eerie because it's like, whoa, that's unexpected. I, um, you know, retrospectively can look back and see how those two persons, places, things, events are are very tied to one another. Um, and yet, hmm, how did they how did they pull that off? How how did they you know connect those two so well, so masterfully? Mm-hmm. So now here's my argument. Any use of foreshadowing is attributable to its author. Um, we we recognize foreshadowing as something that an author does. So then, um, an adept reader or literary critic can spot foreshadowing in a good work of of literature, kind of like what you did in um, you know in your book on Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Now, the concept of foreshadowing only makes sense if um, if we're thinking about literature in terms of a single a single author guiding the story, or at least an an author who is cognizant of what happened before. But but really, here's the thing, if it's foreshadowing, then we're all, ultimately we're talking about the first author, unless you're retconning the foreshadowing into it, which sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, like Marvel TV shows will do, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, retconning meaning, I don't even know what that stands for, but but basically yeah. it's like something happened, uh, you know, in a in a Marvel movie, that came out in 2010, mm-hmm. and then they'll incorporate that element into, you know, the Scarlet Witch TV show or whatever it's called, uh, WandaVision. Right. And they'll say, you know, um, this happened in the past, and th- that foreshadows this. But mm. really, you know, um, Joss Whedon or whoever was not trying to make that a foreshadowing thing. They're just retconning it. But when, mm-hmm. when we're talking about foreshadowing, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about no. an intentional choice that the author is making to mm-hmm. prefigure something that's going to happen later, right? Yep. So it wouldn't make sense then to look for foreshadowing in a newspaper or a scientific journal that's just conveying data or information or even right. conclusions. That's not the kind of writing that we would expect foreshadowing in, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Without an author shaping the narrative, there might be some interesting coincidences, but we couldn't rightly call it foreshadowing as a literary technique. So that's point one. Point two, then, is is this. If the Bible contains foreshadowing, then that foreshadowing is is attributable to its divine author, i.e. God, which I think is what you were talking about earlier. Yep. Um, Okay, uh, let me put that up as a banner here. If the Bible contains foreshadowing, that foreshadowing is is attributable to its divine author, i.e. God. We can recognize foreshadowing when we read it in literature and we give credit to the author responsible for it. When we find foreshadowing in the Bible, it only makes sense then to attribute it to the author for that as well. But who is that author? Well, it's not the prophets who wrote hundreds of years before Christ because they were long gone by the time the events were fulfilled. Mm -hmm. And it's not the authors of the Gospels. They recorded eyewitness testimony, but they weren't responsible for the original Old Testament Illusions. So then, who gets the credit? Well, the Bible claims to be written by God, 2 Timothy 3.16. That means that God is the author, okay, if you accept the biblical worldview. And if you don't, you have a 
heck of a time explaining how all this foreshadowing got in there. More on that in a moment. But literary techniques like foreshadowing are exactly what we would expect to see in a book written by a skilled author. So mm. if there are indisputable examples of foreshadowing in the Bible, then the um, especially in a way that is attributable to uh, that is not attributable to the human author, then this corroborates the belief that the Bible is authored by God. Now, thinking presuppositionally, if you mm. start from the presupposition that the Bible is the word of God, it's exactly what you'd expect to see. If, yes. however, you start from the assumption that the Bible is not written by God, or even, uh, you know, that you know we're going to remain neutral, but neutrality is another form of denial because of what the Bible claims, right? Uh, which claims, you know, the Bible claims no, it is neutral. Mm -hmm. then you actually um, you have no way to account for the very obvious foreshadowing. Now, go ahead. Can I, you know, I, I, you've made a really, I mean, Marshall, a really great argument. I just want to add something that I think a skeptic might want to say at this point. Yeah. You know, couldn't it be that the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the evangelists, and, and Paul, and the other authors of the New Testament epistles, uh, the New Testament authors in general, couldn't they have just uh, retconned it? Couldn't they have just assumed uh, that, you know, oh, okay, you know, we're going to say that Jesus's life reminds us of Joseph's and, uh, you know, of the Exodus and Moses and, uh, you know, the whole going down into Egypt. And you think of the story of Jacob, too, and, and, and on and on it goes. And, and we see these parallels, uh, you know, and they, they, they found them there and they put them in there, but they're really not in there. And I have to make a, a comment here. Uh, you, you look at you know the work that N.T. Wright has done, for example, who's a great Protestant Anglican scholar, and he reminds uh, us. Great, great is debatable, but go on, go on. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. People, yeah, have problems. I, I, I find that this part of his argument is is sound. Yeah, so that's good. Sure. Um, throw it down, throw it down. <laughs> so, um, yeah, he's he's come under fire for some things, but I don't think with this. So his his point is, why would they want to have? these prefigurations about something that people were never expecting uh, ancient second right. temple jews were not looking a for a crucified messiah they were looking for a warrior messiah now that's an oversimplification there's more there were lots of messianic expectations but basically the the, the argument is this why would they have this embarrassing narrative uh you know why would they tie it all together why would you want to make it even more embarrassing for yourself mm to say that this story that uh, nobody wanted, that nobody was expecting somebody to, the Messiah no less, to die in the middle of history and rise in the middle of history mm -hmm. when Second Temple Judaism predicted the uh, resurrection uh, to be after the final judgment at the end of history for all people corporately. Right. So you're, you're, you're building this argument to make this case for something that nobody wanted, nobody was expecting, right. and it's just more embarrassing and so for, to some people and so it seems highly unlikely to me that they would have done this. And I, I just saw somebody put uh, the definition of retcon in there. I, I missed it, but uh, uh, yeah, let me put that back up. It stands for retroactively, retroactively connecting, retroactively okay. connecting. So thank you, okay. Nate Werner, for putting that in. Yes, thank you. I, I didn't know what it meant either, but I understood the meaning. So yeah. I, I think that that's a that's a good objection that that skeptics have that sure. believers have but i think it fails i to convince. i i appreciate that and i and i of course um absolutely agree with nt Wright on that point i think that that's a very good point um and what i've actually done is i've marshaled 20 examples only relating to the death burial and resurrection of christ mm -hmm. um i did this for a sermon i preached 
years ago on uh it was like a good friday and then easter it was kind of a two-parter sermon nice. and um so but but here's the point i'll maybe talk about a few of those examples in a minute but if the bible contains obvious foreshadowing like like where it's not okay there are examples where you might say okay so what, what you just said was a good point the apostles wouldn't have tried to retcon the old testament in the way that they would have had to if they were retconning in other words exactly. if if yeah right like right. if these typological fulfillments are retconning mm. it doesn't make any sense it's completely no. out of the blue that's not how first century second temple jews would have done this that's just and it's like well but they did well uh, no that's no, i actually no. presupposing your conclusion that's exactly. literally begging the question you're just assuming mm -hmm. that they did it mm -hmm. um you have mm -hmm. to look at um you know what makes more sense um now what i what i want to say is this there are examples where they literally couldn't have been doing that um they they they, they just it's outside of the control of the author so mm -hmm. you know okay so so matthew might make a remark here john might make a remark here paul might but there are some things that they couldn't they they couldn't have um you know just been retcon retconning if you will Beautiful. okay so here um so if the bible contains foreshadowing that foreshadowing is is attribu attributable to its divine author the bible does contain indisputable use of foreshadowing here's some examples okay uh example one i'm not going to put these up on the screen so if you're if you're watching at home you're taking notes or something like that here you go i'm going to go kind of fast but how about this jesus would be betrayed by a friend who ate his bread foreshadowed in psalm 41 9 fulfilled in mark 14 10 and 32 through 42. psalm 41 says this even my friend in whom i trusted one who ate my bread has raised his heel against me mm -hmm. now this is not a direct prophecy per se and and you know it's kind of interesting it's like okay uh part of this is literal and part is not he he ate my bread well that you know if i didn't know what happened on the night of the last supper i might say that that's figurative eating bread together that's sort of uh metaphorical for having fellowship you know this is a mm -hmm. close friend but that turned out to be literal jesus literally dipped the matzah into the dish with jesus on passover uh you know he ate the bitter herbs with them or the haroseth or whatever it was and mm -hmm. um that turned out to be literal now the raising the heel that turned out to be figurative jesus mm -hmm. judas didn't literally raise his heel against jesus he did dip the bread but he didn't raise the heel but that part turned out to be um you know metaphorical for what would you say michael disrespect uh aggression yeah. what i would say you know betrayal um to to turn your back on someone that's close to you right right um right yeah no that's a great example and and i like that you you clarified that you know it doesn't invalidate the literal meaning of psalm 41 um that there is an immediate meaning to this and so you know basically the point here is that an author may intend more now just a quick insert here I would say there was a reason why God veiled a lot of his uh, prefigurations oh, of himself. Good. Why? This why? Is this is good. Well, um, I would go with Heiser's explanation here, who most popularly has been making this argument. I think it, it's not, he's not the first to do it, but mm -hmm. scripture, um, you know, states, I think it's in first Corinthians. You'll have to help me out here. 
um, where, you know, if they knew that they were crucifying the Lord of glory, they wouldn't have done it. The powers of the world, this, this whole mosaic that we call the Bible, which we can view it as that Heiser says, you know, is that it, it's cryptic and that there are unintended meanings there on purpose. So if you're, if you're having, if this sounds a little wishy-washy to you up to this point, I would say, I hope it doesn't, but you know, the purpose of this was to conceal God's plan mm -hmm. to die on the cross and rise from the dead because of, and depending on how far you want to press this, uh, the rest of Heiser's theology or his interpretation to hide it from powers that would prevent that right. um, in heaven and in earth or both. And so that's very important is that, you know, you might say, well, oh, come on, Psalm 41, really? I mean, this has nothing to do with Judas and Jesus. Mm. Uh, well, yeah, it, it, it does and it doesn't. And why doesn't it, you know, well, because there's a literal meaning in David's life probably, but also because God didn't want to scream it out and, and put it on a megaphone, right? He right. wanted to, to whisper it and types communicate indirectly that way. They're suggestive and that's on purpose. Yeah. And the reason was to conceal Jesus. Yeah, no, that, I think that's good. And having the immediate fulfillment also aids in that concealment, doesn't it? Because yes, there aren't these big matzo balls out there hanging out there where it's like, hey, this was said but never fulfilled. This clearly is is going to be um, uh, fulfilled, so we better watch out for it. Like mm. even Isaiah 53, that's so cryptic. Even though it says they have pierced my hands and Oh no, that's uh sorry, Psalm 22, they have pierced my hands and feet. But mm -hmm. but um but uh, Isaiah 53, of course, has all this crucifixion and uh you know Roman execution style language, but it could also all be taken in sort of a metaphorical way. Sure. And, and it, in fact, it was so confusing mm. that the Ethiopian eunuch didn't know who he was talking about. Mm -hmm. So that's that right. you know, uh, so Philip gets up in the chariot and explains, "Hey, this is talking about Jesus." Then that's in the course in the book of Acts. Yeah, um, right. And uh, and so you know, King David slam RN on YouTube. Thanks for pointing this out. Slam RN mm. says that David had enemies who were friends per se. You know, you even think about King Saul. You know, mm -hmm. his father-in-law, his mentor, who mm. wanted to kill him. It's like, man. You know, that's right. That's, that's that's an immediate fulfillment, and the, the fact that that was fulfilled helps to aid in the in the hiding of these things, the concealing. That's right. Things. That's the passage. Thank you. Yeah. So the passage, First Corinthians two eight, which says, "None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory." Mm, love that passage. Yeah, mm -hmm. me too. Very very good. Yeah. All yeah. right. So so moving along, let me just give now. We we cannot go through all 20 of these examples, but let me just invite anyone. If you want to do a quick Google search, if you search, if you, I'll tell you what, if you go to my old website, my pastoral website, setacase.wordpress.com. And uh, if you search on the website and the search bar can be kind of difficult to find, but if you go there and you search for an argument for an argument from foreshadowing, now I do have a ThinkPod episode of this. You can search throughout the ThinkPod as well. Um, back catalog there, but if you go to setacase.wordpress.com, an argument from foreshadowing, you'll get my 20 examples. But let me just give one more. It's actually two or three, but they're just combined into one. Now, this I think is just this is really remarkable. This is an example of one of those instances of foreshadowing that is so crazy. No human, like when you think about who, which, which near humans would have had to have collaborated. In order to make this happen, it it's 
it's not feasible. It's just not plausible. It doesn't, it, it stretches the imagination too far. Um, and, uh, so, so let's, um, let's, uh, let's do this here. Uh, let me, let me share, share with you what this was. Okay. Um, Zechariah 11 says this, it says, then I said to them, if it seems right to you, give me my wages, but if not keep them. So they weighed my wages, 30 pieces of silver. The Lord said to me, Oh man, get this. This is unbelievable. Okay. Mm. The Lord said to me, hold on, let me change my banner here. Okay. Uh, the Bible, this is an example of biblical foreshadowing. Why can't I? Okay. I'm just going to keep going. The Lord said to me, this magnificent price, I was valued by them. In other words, the Lord is being valued for 30 pieces of silver. And that value is taking the form of wages for services rendered. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the Lord is valued at just 30 pieces of silver. What, what is that? What is this talking about? What could this be foreshadowing? How about Matthew 26, 15 that mm. says, um, where Judas goes to the, the, I believe it's the priests. And he says, what are you willing to give me if I hand him, i.e. Jesus over to you? So they weighed out how much money? 30 pieces of silver for mm -hmm. him. The Lord is being valued at 30 pieces of silver for services rendered. What are those mm -hmm. services? Judas is going to betray Jesus. He's going to lead Jesus to them so that they can um, so that they can crucify him, so they can have him tried in a kangaroo court and and tortured and and uh, brutalized and ultimately killed. Mm -hmm. Okay, now, as if that wasn't enough, get this. Zechariah 11, 13 says, throw it to the potter, the Lord said to me. This is insane. Look at this. Throw it to the potter, the Lord said to me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw it to, into the house of the Lord mm. to the potter. I threw it to the house of the Lord to the potter. Zechariah, what are you talking about? Have you lost your mind? None of this. May There's a potter in the house of the Lord in the temple. Mm. Somehow, this person who received his wages for services rendered is going to throw the 30 pieces of silver into the temple and it's going to go to the potter. What? Mm -hmm. Well, Matthew 27, five says this. So he, Judas threw the silver into the temple and departed. He threw it into the house of the Lord. Okay, great. But how does it get to the potter? So they conferred together and bought the potter's field with it. It went to the field of the potter. He threw it into the temple and it ended up going to the potter. I mean, mm. this is mind blowing because yeah. it, it's not like there was a prophet who stood up and said, there it shall come to pass that a man shall throw the coins into the temple and then the priests of the temple shall buy the field and it's the potter's field. Mm. It says, throw it to the temple, to the potter. And we don't find out um, until, you know, 500 years later, however many years it was between Zechariah and uh and judas here how exactly that's going to be fulfilled but you have Crazy. this miraculous um uh fulfillment of foreshadowing type and anti-type and it's like now wait a second could that just be retconning well who's retconning this is jude is judas going oh i can't wait to fulfill this prophecy you know <laughs> no is is matthew matthew's recording what happened um but it's not like he's making up events out of whole cloth. Now, Matthew is connecting the dots for us. Mm -hmm. So in that regard, it's like, well, maybe Matthew's just being creative. But 
that did Matthew go back and tap on Zechariah's shoulder and go, hey, Zechariah, make sure you include this? No, this has no. been included in Jewish scripture for 500 years, 400 years. Mm -hmm. So th the idea that this is um, a human retconning here is just, it, it, it boggles the mind. It stretches the imagination to the breaking point. And now this is, this is, uh, let me just wrap up my argument then. Um, and there's, there's plenty of other examples, but the, um, here's the argument. Denial of the Bible's foreshadowing is at least a willful denial rooted in bias. In other words, we just don't want it to be there. Mm -hmm. And at most tantamount to the denial of the possibility of any author using foreshadowing in any literature. The reason why is because foreshadowing has a definition. Figural writing has a definition. If you deny, if you refuse to recognize it, what you're doing is you are obliterating the standard. You're saying it's clearly there. We we have to be radically skeptical because we can't allow this to to be there in Scripture, because the Bible can't have been written by God. Mm -hmm. You know the, the uh, Occam's razor. You know the simplest explanation is probably the best one, um, and and atheists will trot that out all the time. But what's the simplest example or the the simplest explanation here? You know, mm -hmm. is it really? that there was this vast conspiracy across hundreds of years to, you know, make things happen here? Or is it simply that there's a singular author? Mm -hmm. And the only reason you wouldn't think that's the, the most simple explanation is because you're just begging the question. You're assuming your conclusion <laughs> at the outset. So, um, so my, my argument then argument from foreshadowing is if you deny the Bible's foreshadowing, you have to get rid of foreshadowing as a meaningful literary technique in all literature. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we're not going to do that. Therefore, recognize it in scripture. And therefore, it makes sense that uh, to the, the biblical worldview that says <clears throat> Bible was written by God is true. The unbiblical worldview that says the Bible was not written by the divine author is false necessarily because otherwise, you know, um, foreshadowing makes no sense without God. So, uh, so there you go. I, I think that's a pretty solid argument if I do say so myself, but, but what do you think? I, I'm blown away by it. I think it is. I would, I would just say there's one thing that could even make it better that really just kind of adds that to that last part. Yeah. You know, God, uh, I'll bring in a little Tolkien here. You know, Tolkien said that we make in the image and likeness in which we were made. And so if you yeah. deny, uh, this in the Bible, you're denying, um, human creativity, uh, you know, um, from the Christian point of view in which we make in the likeness and image in which we were made. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course you deny that there's any ability that being made in the image of God, we're able to do this in other works of literature. So you really, you lose everything you lose first and second things to wow. use Lewis's terminology here again. So I would say that's just kind of deepening the argument a bit, but I, I think it's great. Uh, and, and by that, I mean, it, it's logical. It's sound. I think there's evidence that that supports it and, um, you know, I, I enjoyed reading it when you sent it to me. So thank you. And I know, um, yeah, no, thank you for, for making it. I think people would really benefit from looking at your, I'm looking at your 20 examples here. I, I had some of my own too, that I would, um, I would add, I only have like one or two other things I would add to today's episode. Um, but I don't know That's if it. you want me to yeah, talk about something else, but yeah, no, let's, um, I'd love to hear it. We do have some comments yeah. that have come in. Sure. Um, do that first. We need yeah. to, we need to, uh, um, well, 
now I'm, I'm curious as to what are those other one or two things. So, so give, give okay. us like the, the Sonic the Hedgehog version. Sorry, I've got sure. four kids. Uh, give us the uh, Flash version or whatever. Uh, sure. And then, uh, or if you prefer the, the Eagles, what are those Eagles called? The Eagles of, uh, uh, I don't know. They travel fast and swiftly. Yeah, I like the Sonic uh, reference. I, I, I can I can dig it. So um, I, I would I would pick one. It's, it's always stuck with me as just impressive. Matthew 22, 41 through 46, um, you know, Mark 12, 35 through 37. You can find it also in Luke uh, 20, 41 through 44. It's a reference back um, to Psalm 110, verse one. So so let's just take Matthew's example. This is whose son is the Messiah. And he's having a conversation after he's told a few parables. He's been interrogated about the resurrection, I believe. And uh, so what we're, we're looking at, an example of foreshadowing that Jesus finds in prefiguration of himself in Psalm 110, verse 1. This goes back to, you know, of course, there's a literal meaning to Psalm 110, verse 1, and the rest of the psalm, which you really ought to read, Psalm 110, is right. excellent. Uh, but there's this point that Jesus isn't just David's son. He's David's Lord. Yeah. And this was something that, of course, the author of Psalm 110, David, we think, as far as I'm aware, couldn't possibly have known this. The other interesting thing is that the Hebrew in the first verse is that there's two names for, for, for God there. I think it's, you know, Yahweh speaking to Adonai. And so it's God speaking to God or is it, you know, so it's, it's a mysterious verse to begin with. It's been mm -hmm. debated, but I think it's another great example um of uh, foreshadowing that jesus really just and that nobody dared approach him after that day is uh verse yeah. 46 it's great i love that's it right that's right yeah man as you're talking melchizedek is, is another good one that comes yes. to mind you know uh you are a yep. priest forever in the order of melchizedek oh yeah. what yeah makes that's makes good. little sense you've really got to look look deep into that and I, you know this one's too technical but i'll just say the last thing i was going to say and then i'll, I'll be done mm -hmm is this this whole idea of recognizing the the latter that that is the archetype in the former this is what cs lewis called symbolism or which i love this term sacramentalism mm. recognizing the archetype in the types right is uh this poetic effect that's called metalepsis uh, and it's really great is that we've been talking about it the whole episode but if you look up uh, metalepsis it's uh, m-e-t-a-l-e-p-s-i-s uh look up can that you, term can you spell that again for me i'm gonna put that up sure on the yeah let me let me put it it's um m-e-t-a-l metal uh epsis e-p-s-i-s so metal epsis and yeah that, that's it so it's it's got a long definition but it's you know grasping the latter in the former and still having significance in the former it's this tension between in our examples, the Old Testament and the New Testament, where there's still significance in those uh, passages out of the, the Hebrew Bible, but they also prefigure Christ. And so if you want a word that talks about this dialogue between the Testaments, that's the word, and it's a really good word. Ooh, that's that's uh, Yeah, yeah, so that's it for me. Awesome. I love mm. it. All right, well, let's get to some of the comments that have come in. I'm not sure. We had like one or two like straight-up questions, but... cool. Uh, Slam RN is saying that he or she, um, yeah. I'm guessing she, because this person has Lucy as their avatar, <laughs> uh, Lucy from peanuts, but, um, yeah. uh, metal, uh, sorry, Slam RN is saying that they can't get to your website. So I'll okay. just pass that on to you and thank you. Yeah. I'll, I'll investigate it. It's, it's working for me, so I don't know, but we'll, we'll figure it out. I'll, I'll take a look. Okay. 
Thank you. All right. Um, let's see. A lot of greetings, a lot of hellos. Um, well, Gospel Ambassador just pointed out Hebrews 10.1 talks about the law having a shadow of good mm-hmm. things to come. Um, and and actually, Gospel Ambassador was, was um, dropping all these examples of typology. This is when you were talking about typology um, mm. from Hebrews. And Hebrews is such a good book for... Yeah for being, you know, for like Hebrews and Matthew are written to, to such a, a Jewish audience, mm-hmm. you know, that, that they, they just draw so heavily on the old Testament. Yes. Um, right. Yes. Yep. Um, they do. Yep. Okay. Here's a question for you. Is there a difference? This is coming from Noah to Spain. Noah, thanks for your question. Is there a difference between shadows foreshadowing and types? What do you think? No. Uh, so a shadow, a figure, a type, they're all three ways of saying the same thing. So the shadows are uh, shadows of the real, the most real thing, which is the archetype Jesus Christ. So that's at least the Christian argument. So no, I would say that there are uh, multiple ways of saying the same thing. Okay. Uh, thanks. And then we've got some people sharing their thoughts on uh, sort of just in, in the chat, talking to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. Let's see. We've got... Great question, by the way, Noah. Thank you. Yes. Um, uh, Slam RN points out that Michael Heiser talks about the already and the not yet. I don't mm-hmm. have, obviously, he's not the first to talk about that, but uh, mm-hmm. certainly does talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Okay. That's, oh, you know what? We did have one comment come in, which now I can't seem to find. Um, mm. Someone was asking, ah, oh, here we go. Gospel Ambassador asks, what are the top three evidences slash proofs that the Bible is true? Which is pretty far afield from what we're talking about today. But do you have a favorite, Michael, do you have a favorite evidence or proof that, that, that you know, that the Bible is true? Gosh, no. I mean, on, on, a, on a whim, I mean, I would say um, we would need to, to do this in tandem with, with proving God's existence. I mean, the moral argument has always been my favorite, that the Bible speaks in wisdom literature about the existence of a moral order. And uh, this seems to at the very least prove that the Bible is a realistic text, i.e. true. Mm-hmm. Truth is a statement about fact, right? So I would say that's um, a line that's always been very meaningful to me. Another one, just real quick, you know, kind of an evidentialist track would be the survival of it is a, is a miracle in and of itself. I, I did a lot of studies on Alexander the Great and didn't realize just how far afield these scanty texts were and how uh, many centuries they were written after his, uh, his mysterious death and, you know, 323. So to me, the Bible is, is unique and it's um, uh, multiple attestations and it's uh, archeological support and corroboration from other Greco-Roman sources. And to me, that's, and Jewish sources, it's a, uh, I'll use the term loosely, you know, what I mean by miracle, it's outstanding. It's extraordinary. It's unique. Yeah, no, so, that's that's really good. Uh, for me, uh, I guess my favorite proof is that without it being true, you couldn't prove anything at all. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the the Bible itself gives the preconditions, or or gives the the biblical worldview contains within itself the conditions that are necessary for proof, truth, evidence, inquiry. If God is real, and He is, then we should. Be, we should expect to live in a world in which you can prove things through rational inference. If God yes. were not real, 
then we would have no reason to think that there are these universal, invisible, immaterial, unchanging laws governing thought and governing the world such that things are consistent from one moment to the next. Mm -hmm. You can't do any kind of inquiry in that kind of world. You can't reason and make rational inferences in that kind of world. And there's really no reason to think that evidence at all is a meaningful concept. Um, I love that. I also tend to, I really do love, uh, if I do say so myself, I like this argument, <laughs> this argument from foreshadowing. Yeah. Because it, the Bible is such an incredible book and God has written his signature on it. And I, mm. I like, John Frame calls himself something, he says he adheres to something close to biblicism. In other words, mm. the Bible said it, uh, I believe it, that settles it. Now, I know that's so simplistic and fundamentalist sounding, but mm. <laughs> you know, Cornelius Van Til says that one of the, he says the best, uh, most theologically correct song that we can sing is, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's like, yeah. you yeah. know, yeah, the, the Bible says it, I believe it. Now, mm. we have to figure out what the Bible is actually saying, and of course, there's all kinds sure. of hermeneutical and exegetical work that go into that. Oh, yeah. But when we've settled on something that the Bible says, we can take that to the bank. We can we can trust that. We can believe it. And I like the argument from foreshadowing because it 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 puts scripture up on display and says, look how magnificent our God is for yes. giving us this book, this this amazing work of literature. And it's not just literature, but it's no. not less than literature either. Mm -hmm. And um, I you know uh, who was it that called it the true myth? Oh, uh, Lewis, C.S. Lewis, yes, and and J.R.R. Tolkien. I mean, a lot of lot of uh, writers in the 20th century um, did, but yeah, they they both famously did. Yeah, you know, I, yeah, I would say uh, I love it too. And you know, if you're really if you've got objections, and, and who doesn't have questions and objections? I mean, right. we, we even have them occasionally. I like the presuppositionalist approach in, in this regard that you've described, but you really need to throw all your effort into looking at the great work that in you know people have put into to this if you're going to reject it. If you're going to object to right. it, you really need to, you can't just say, I watched a YouTube video. I, you know, my friend told me you really got to go dig into it yourself. Okay. Me meaning who, who, who's that directly? Well, towards? so the skeptics, skeptics um, so, yeah. so people who have, um, a lot of, uh, doubt and, you know, uh, are, are deeply skeptical about the, the Bible being true, God's existence, uh, right. in general. Yeah. Right. So I would say go, go, go and search, you know, go, uh, go dig deeper. That's good. Mm -hmm. Appreciate that. One last question from Nate Werner. And this is for you, obviously. <laughs> Did you figure out whether Belrogs, Balrogs have wings or not since the last time you were on? I did, Nate. I, I looked into this and I found uh, that there are different, I, I'm serious, I'm dead serious about this. Uh, so I, I don't remember at what point I did and I, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but I, I don't know if it was because of you, but it probably got stuck in my head uh, in all, in all intents and purposes, it probably was. Um, I, I found one uh, passage where Tolkien says they did, and another where he seems to suggest uh, poetically that they did not. So it, it kind of seemed up in the air. If you go to Tolkien Gateway or one of those great sites, I think you can find the, uh, you know, the scripture of Tolkien where he talks about this uh, in more detail. So I, I, it's 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 still to be decided, I guess. So we don't know. <laughs> we still don't know. We still don't know. I, I think I think you could go either way. Um, I, I could be really wrong on this, and, and there's people really upset right now, and I'm, mm -hmm. I'm very afraid of the Tolkien uh, community uh, backlash I might get. Yes. But yeah, I'm dead serious about this. Um, I love that you 
you froze that. <laughs> yes, yes. If uh, if anyone's listening, I did and can't see the screen right now. I did just put up a banner that says, "quote I'm dead serious about this." End quote. Michael Jahoski on Balrogs. Yeah. So yeah. that's good. Um, yep. All right. Do we have any more questions coming in? All right. Uh, Nate. Nate does. He did follow that up, and and he said, oh, yeah. exactly three exclamation yeah. points. It's a disagreement between Tolkien scholars. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, there you go. Um, oh, God, thank God I'm okay. Yeah. yeah ho hopefully we can. <laughs> uh, hopefully we can get a little more clarity on that. Yeah. Um, but uh, but Michael, this was as expected. Really, really wonderful. How thank can you. people? Uh, where can people find your book? How about that? Because people need to be reading sure. your book. I appreciate that. Um, you know, it's uh, it's on Amazon. You can find it on Amazon.com. It's a paperback, uh, Kindle ebook. You can get it everywhere books are sold. I've seen it everywhere. But most people will know Amazon. My publisher is Whip and Stock. Mm -hmm. uh, you can find it on their website as well. Great. So mm -hmm. go to Amazon, go to Whip and Stock. Or check out thelastdunedincom.wordpress.com for Michael Jahoski's book and writings. And definitely go check out the Mythic Mission podcast YouTube channel. And uh, check out um, the uh, well, check out that interview that he did with Paul Gould. That's that's mm. got to be Paul Gould is Mr. Cultural Apologetics. So he that's is. that's got to be a great conversation. So everybody go yeah. check that out. And um, Hey, since you're watching the Think Institute Network and listening to our podcast, um, here's something you might be interested in. You can partner with the Think Institute. You can support Elisa and me. We are support raising missionaries through Crew, and you can partner with us by going to give.crew.org slash 101-8841. That's our giving link. As missionaries, we have a giving link. You can go there. You could drop a, you could do a $25 one-time gift. You could do a $100 one-time gift. You could do $100 a month, $5 a month. But we really appreciate everyone who makes the Think Institute and the work that we're doing to equip, encourage, and engage believers possible. So thank you so much. If you partnered with us financially, thank you. Uh, if you'd like to do that, I'd be happy to give you more information. You can email me at thethink.institute at gmail.com. This is my job. This is what I do full-time. This, doing trainings in churches, uh, doing um, uh, cohort-based Bible studies and and trainings in the biblical worldview, evangelism, and apologetics through our Applied Theology Wing, which is called the Hammer and Anvil Society. Think about a hammer and an anvil, iron sharpening iron, Proverbs 27, 17. See what we did there? Very nice, right? Check it out. Go to thethink.institute slash hammer and anvil if you want more information about that. In fact, maybe we can get that up on the screen. Okay, well, maybe not. Um, here we go. And um, trying to think if there's anything else. Follow us on social media if you haven't done so yet. We're on Facebook, Parlor. No, not Parlor. That's defunct. And now that they're back, I don't care about them. Uh, Gab, <laughs> MeWe. Let's see. Twitter, of course. Yes, we are on Instagram, but we never post on there because uh, I'm not investing my talents as wisely as I need to be. But I also want to spend some time with my family for crying out loud. So I can't be on there. God forbid. Yeah. Uh, right. <laughs> um, yeah, I hear uh, but yeah, so, uh, so thank you for watching. Uh, Nate Werner says, I just pronounced Donna Dane, like someone who mispronounces Dart Gnan. Dart Gnan. Yes. D'Artagnan. You're talking about, uh, three musketeers, I think. All right. It's, it's D'Artagnan. Isn't no. it? Is listen, it D'Artagnan? I don't know. Uh, here's what I'm going to say. 
Go to lastdonadan.com. You don't like it? Come up with your own podcast, man. I'll yeah. I'm sorry, too. You know, I get the nerd references there, and the, even in the URL, so I had to squeeze in a Tolkien reference just about everywhere I go. <laughs> yeah. Well, so so there you go, Nate. It's it's not my fault. It's uh, it's Michael's. But um, but I'm just trying to make things a little easier for people. Dunadan is the phonetic uh, pronunciation. Uh, Gospel Ambassador says, even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Oh, amen. All right. Now, that's about all I have for you today. Check out how to support us. Check out the website. Send me an email. And definitely go check out all of Professor Jahoski's work. Um, it's very good. I can't vouch for all of it, but the stuff that I've seen is very good. And um, remember, this is not goodbye. This has just been a little pit stop along the road of your spiritual journey. That's about all we have for you today. So until next time, I hope we made you think.